Um, you know, I'll be honest, I have been dreading this passage um, since I decided to preach the book of Ecclesiastes. I think this is the most difficult to understand passage in the whole book. If you read it ahead of time, um, you would understand why. Um, this passage, it seems to have lots of different proverbs, which can kind of seem disconnected and almost random. Now, I don't necessarily think all of the verses are hard to interpret by themselves, though some of them certainly are, but instead it's kind of hard to see how all of these different pieces fit together. It's kind of like trying to do a puzzle if you don't have the box that has the picture on it. Uh, my wife, Bri and I were doing that last night. We had the puzzle and we didn't have the box, and it was a little challenging to figure out, well, I know this is a building, but I have no idea where this building goes, so I'm just going to put it here for a while until we figure this out. But the reality is that we don't get to opt out of listening to and obeying God's word just because it's hard for us to understand. Too often this is an attitude that Christians can have when it comes to studying God's word, right? We can understand and think, well, this is too hard, so I quit. Um, I'm not going to worry about that part there. But if we really do love Jesus, if we really do love his word, if we really do value his word, if we say that we believe this is God's word and we want to listen to it, then I think we need to roll up our sleeves and we've got to wrestle with it even when it's really hard to understand. So that's a lot of setup, but what's this passage actually about, Pastor? Well, I think this whole passage is really kind of about the destructive power of foolishness. Um, and it's about how much devastation it can leave in its wake. So I'm going to do my best to try and tie these different Proverbs together so that you can kind of see what this passage has to teach us here. Now I'm going to cut it up a little differently. I'm not just going to start at verse 13 in chapter 9 and walk all the way through the end. We'll mostly do that, but I'll kind of look at different chunks in your bulletin that will give you the verses there. Uh, but so, you know, buckle up, put on your hard hat, um, and let's, let's wrestle with God's Word and let's see what it has to teach us. And I'd invite you to stand as we read God's Word, starting in chapter 9, verse 13, all the way to the end, um, because we do value God's Word, and we want to hear it first um, before you hear what I think about it. Ecclesiastes 9:13. I have also seen this example of wisdom under the sun, and it seemed great to me. There was a little city with few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it, building great siege works there. But it was found in it a poor, wise man, and he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet no one remembered the poor man. But I say that wisdom is better than might, though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard. The words of the wise heard and quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools. Wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. Dead flies make the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart to the left. Even when the fool walks on the road, he lacks sense, and he says to everyone that he is a fool. If the anger of the ruler rises against you, do not leave your place, for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. There is an evil that I have seen under the sun, as it were an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly is set in many high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I have seen slaves on horses and princes walking on the ground like slaves. He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them, and he who splits logs is endangered by them. If the iron is blunt and one does not sharpen the edge, he must use more strength, but wisdom helps one to succeed. If the serpent bites before it is charmed, it is no advantage to the charmer. The words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. 
The beginning of the words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what is to be, and who can tell him what will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he does not know the way to the city. Woe to you, O land, when your king is a child, and your princes feast in the morning. Happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of the nobility, and your princes feast at the proper time for strength and not for drunkenness. Through sloth the roof sinks in, and through indolence the house leaks. Bread is made for laughter, and wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Even in your thoughts do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice, or some winged creature tell the matter. The grass withers and the flower fades, but God's word stands forever. Let's pray. Lord, I ask um, for your grace and your help this morning. I pray that your Holy Spirit would come and you would illuminate your word. That you would help us to understand what in the world this means, why we should care, and how we can apply it to our lives. And most of all, what does this have to say about Jesus and the gospel? We pray these things in your holy and precious name. Amen. You can be seated. So point number one, if you're taking notes and following along in your bulletin, um, is the destructive power of folly. So first we're going to talk about the destructive power of folly. Now the entire book of Ecclesiastes we've been going through for these many weeks is meant to teach us how to live wisely. But it's a hard book. And sometimes it can even be a bit of a brutal book. Particularly because it shows us over and over the limits of wisdom. Right? The, the, br the brutal reality of life. But it doesn't mean that wisdom is worthless. Okay, primarily the reason wisdom isn't worthless, even though it's limited, is because foolishness is so destructive. Okay, foolish words, foolish decisions, foolish actions, they can often end even in blood. They destroy people. 9.18 tells us, you know, one sinner destroys much good. One foolish person set loose in a community can blow it all up and cause chaos. And he tells us this, this a story kind of at the end of 9, starting at 13, to illustrate this, comparing the power of wisdom and folly. 13, I've seen this example of wisdom under the sun. It seemed great to me. There was a little city with a few men in it, and a great king came against it and besieged it. He built these great siege works, but there was found in it a poor wise man. And he, by his wisdom, delivered the city. Yet no one remembered that poor man. But I say wisdom is better than might. Though the poor man's wisdom is despised and his words are not heard, the words of the wise heard and quiet are better than the shouting of a ruler among fools, and wisdom is better than weapons of war, but one sinner destroys much good. So picture a really small town, not, you know, Marlowe or Comanche. Picture a town of like four people. Okay, picture, picture that. A place like Dar, Nebraska, near where I grew up. I drive by it all the time on I-80. Had two houses, a grain silo, and a big green sign that told you, you're in Dar, Nebraska. Okay, it's a little city with so few men, you wonder how in the world did this even get to be called a city anyway? There must be some loophole. Okay, it's against a place like that that this huge king rolls in against it. And he brings all of his army, his cannons, his artillery, his cavalry, all his generals. And somehow a little poor homeless man in there comes up with a big idea and it saves the small tiny city from getting wiped out. His wisdom alone delivers him from that evil. This is the story that he tells us. But fitting with the theme of Ecclesiastes is, yeah, and then everyone forgets about that guy. And he kind of dies alone, even though that's amazing. And wisdom is so great, it's still limited. Then he gets ignored. 
And even though that fact, even though wisdom is great and powerful, but people will forget you and it won't matter at all, it's still better than folly and foolishness. And it seems even in this story, too, that these powerful weapons and siege works and the weapons of war, they are a personification of folly and its destructive ability. See, foolishness, it's as destructive as the artillery down at Fort Sill would be to your house. It's way better to be underappreciated and totally forgotten but wise than to be a destructive fool causing chaos. And verse 1, he, he sums up how destructive folly really is. He compares it to a dead fly in perfume. Verse 1 of chapter 10, a dead fly makes the perfumer's ointment give off a stench. So a little folly outweighs wisdom and honor. Okay, some of you like to wear um, perfume or cologne. How many of you would want to wear perfume with a dead bug in it? Okay, if I bought some for you and I gave it to you at Christmas time, but I said, hey, there's just one problem with this. There is a dead bug in there, but here you go. Merry Christmas. Okay, how many of you are going to wear that? How many of you are just going to throw it in the trash? You're not even going to open it and smell it to see what it's like. No, right? But, but that, just as destructive as that is, that's how destructive folly is. Why? Because a little bit causes a big stink. A little bit of folly outweighs lots and lots of wisdom and honor. And this is the same way that the Old Testament repeatedly talks about sin. It talks about how it's the leaven. It seeps in through the whole loaf of bread. A little bit of sin can rot us all out from the inside. It destroys communities and even nations. Foolishness and sin, they're destructive powers and they ruin everything that they touch. Not just a little bit. And ultimately we have a choice. Okay, what is the road we're going to take? Are we going to walk in the path of wisdom? Are we going to follow in Jesus' footsteps? Are we going to follow the path of folly? Are we going to go our own way? Foolishness tries to go its own path. It's like a hiker on the Appalachian Trail who decides they don't need to follow the path. They'll just go this way in the woods and see what happens. They'll, they'll be fine. Folly is destructive. Verse 2, chapter 10 tells us, A wise man's heart inclines him to the right, but a fool's heart inclines him to the left. This verse there, it's describing the two paths. The wise take the path on the right. They take the right path, the correct way. The foolish take their own path. And you can even tell who a fool is based on the way that they walk. You just, you watch them and you can tell that person's just kind of a dummy. Verse 3, even when a fool walks on the road, he lacks sense. And he says to everyone that he is a fool. You just watch them and you know what you're seeing. Picture somebody walking around on 81 and they're going in circles. Okay, in the, in the middle of the road. They're wandering in the middle of an intersection, maybe in front of Brahms and Walmart at 5 o'clock. Okay, and everyone sitting there would be in their cars going, what is this fool doing? They clearly lack sense. What is happening? Walking around like that is going to lead to your destruction. Folly is obvious. It's like walking into traffic blindfolded and drunk. That will not work. It won't end well. Everyone can tell watching how foolish this is. That's what foolishness is. In verse 4, he tries to give us some wisdom, right, of how to not be foolish. He uses the example of how to handle an angry leader. Verse 4, if the anger of the ruler rises against you or the king, the person in charge, your boss, don't leave your place for calmness will lay great offenses to rest. Okay, if someone is angry, if someone is yelling at you, if someone is escalating, and this is a big conflict, stay calm. Be wise. Diffuse the situation. The fool retaliates, right? And they start yelling back. How often does that work? No, it just escalates things until somebody can't yell high enough is the other one. It leads to destruction. 
Okay, I have two little rulers in my house. Rather, two little boys who think that they are the rulers of the house. I mean, you know, almost four and two. And many days, um, they get angry at me. Or their anger rises up against me because I have told them that they can't do something. Now, if I respond with more anger and I yell back at them or I start screaming at them or throwing things, it, that doesn't help anything. Okay, that's destructive. It's destructive because it destroys them, destroys our, our future, it harms their relationship, and it also it's going to hurt my own soul too. Instead, I need to be wise. I'm not always wise, but I'm working at it. They give me plenty of chances. But the wise respond with calmness and wisdom, while fools just yell and start a fight. Wisdom can heal and restore, while folly can only destroy and break. We're going to jump ahead here. We're going to skip verses 5 through 7 for a minute. Jump ahead to verse 8 for a moment. Verses 8 through 10, it gives us somewhat kind of pithy proverbs of wisdom. Um, I don't think these are just randomly chosen, though you might have thought it when we read it earlier. Um, I think they're to show us that every path we walk on in life, whether it is the path of wisdom on the right or the path of fools on the left, there's danger everywhere. You're not going to escape it. Um, even if you're walking in the wisdom of Jesus or you're walking your own path, you're going to get hurt. It's unavoidable. Verse 8 tells us, He who digs a pit will fall into it, and a serpent will bite him who breaks through a wall. He who quarries stones is hurt by them. He who splits logs is endangered by them. Okay, you don't have to walk blindfolded in traffic to get hit by a car. Okay, that can happen even if you're safe on the sidewalk, being wise and doing everything you're supposed to do. Because this is reality and this is life. Okay, if you dig holes in your front yard, there's a chance you might fall into it, whether you're really smart or really dumb. It can happen. If you're doing some remodeling in your house and you break into a wall, you can find out, oh, there are snakes living in there because I just got bit by one. doesn't matter how smart or how foolish you are. There could be snakes in your walls and you just didn't know it. If you carry ro rocks around, you might hurt your back. Even if you have really good form, you could just pull something. If you're outside chopping firewood with an axe, you could hurt yourself, whether you're being smart or whether you're being a fool. All of these are kind of somewhat unavoidable dangers. However, being foolish puts you in even greater danger doesn't it? Verse 10, 10 tells us, you know, if the iron's blunt and one doesn't sharpen the edge, he must use more strength. But wisdom helps one to succeed. If you're trying to chop wood with a dull axe, it's going to be pretty hard. It's not going to go well. You might not do it at all. Maybe you will, but you're probably going to hurt yourself in the meantime. But if you're wise, if you sharpen it, it's going to be much easier. It's going to go a lot faster than you thought, even if you didn't want to pause to take the time to sharpen your axe. But wisdom helps us succeed, but foolishness will always lead us to failure. But we can be wise. We can still fall into a pit or get bit by a snake or get hurt while you're chopping wood. That's just the reality of life. But if you are a fool, you can be sure you're going to fall into a pit. And you're going to be sure you're going to get bit by more stakes and you're going to get hurt by more stones. Because foolishness is destructive. It's not wise and it won't succeed. 10.11 warns us, though, if a, a snarepent bites before it is charmed, it is no advantage to the charmer. Okay, if you are wise, but you don't actually use your wisdom, um, that's not going to go well either. It doesn't matter if you're a snake charmer if you don't charm the snake in front of you. If you just think, well, I'm a snake charmer, so I can do whatever I want now. No, 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 you still have to use the wisdom that you have if you want to avoid this. If you're really wise, but you act like a fool... That's going to lead to your destruction, too. Solomon, right, he's the wisest man who ever lived. 
Yet he often acted like a fool when you read his story. He constantly refused to obey God's commands. He abused women, treated them just like a commodity, and his foolishness led to plenty of issues that fractured his nation not long after his death because he didn't do a very good job raising his children either. You can be really wise, but if you act like a fool, it's going to lead to destruction too. Just having wisdom doesn't save you. You've got to use it. 12 through 15, the words of a wise man's mouth win him favor, but the lips of a fool consume him. The beginning of words of his mouth is foolishness, and the end of his talk is evil madness. A fool multiplies words, though no man knows what it is, and who can tell him what it will be after him? The toil of a fool wearies him, for he doesn't know the way to the city. These last few verses here, I think they're all just all about the destructive power of our mouths, especially because fools never stop talking. They just keep going and going and going. They multiply their words. And when they start talking, you realize, wow, they have no idea what they're talking about. And they know they don't know what they're talking about, but that doesn't stop them. They just keep going. And by the time a fool finishes talking, they've probably driven you crazy. The end of their talk is evil madness, if they didn't have some already. But the foolishness, and even the foolish talk like this, it is self-destructive. This is why it says the lips of a fool consume him. And their talk leads to madness. Folly will always lead to you getting burned out and overwhelmed. Folly will leave you lost with nowhere to go and nowhere to turn. It'll get you into problems that it can't get you out of. So foolishness is destructive, but this destructiveness it can even be amplified. Okay, one foolish person can wreck a church, but if you have an elder who's a fool, or worse, if you have the senior pastor as a big fool, it's going to leave a lot of destruction in its wake. So our, our second point here is about the destructive power of foolish leaders. So I think the second part of this book is all about, is about how destructive foolish leaders are. Because fools can cause plenty of trouble on their own. Right, we know this. We've all seen fools who do that. But when the leader in a community is a fool, there is even more pain and more suffering and more sinfulness. Instead of just having a fly in the ointment and that perfume, it's like taking all of the perfume out and just replacing it with skunk spray. It makes things even worse. It's how dangerous foolish leaders are. Go back to verse 5 in chapter 10. He says, There's an evil that I have seen under the sun. As it were, an error proceeding from the ruler. Folly gets set up in high places, and the rich sit in a low place. I've seen slaves on horses, and the princes walking on the ground like slaves. The great evil that he sees here, he's trying to describe, is when fools get put in charge. When folly gets to run the company just because of who their dad was. Even though everyone knows they're going to ruin it and just run this into the ground. The fool who gets elected to a position in the government makes you scratch your head and wonder, you know, why is everyone falling for this? This person's obviously a fool. Now, this isn't a new problem. There's nothing new under the sun. But when we see foolish people in charge, it makes us think, oh, maybe God made a mistake. There must be an error. How could this happen? God, what are you doing? It frustrates us. Because we might not recognize how destructive the foolishness of our own hearts is, but we definitely recognize how destructive the foolishness of foolish leaders is. And he uses the rich and slaves and princes, he uses them all kind of as examples. But we got to remember the genre of scripture we're talking about here. This is wisdom literature. Okay, it's Proverbs. Um, he's saying there are people in charge who should not be in charge. Then the people who should be in charge are being overlooked and ignored. Okay, he's not making statements about class or supporting the nobility. This isn't just, you know, a pro-monarchy ideal. 
Um, his point is that fools are in charge and they really shouldn't be. Fools are the ones that are up in these high places. 10.16, jump ahead there. He says, Woe to you, O land, when your child or your king is a child and your princes feast in the morning. He proclaims a prophetic woe over the land. This is a, it's a lament. It's a weeping. Saying it's really terrible when the good king dies and suddenly a spoiled teenager gets to have all the power in the kingdom and they start doing whatever they want. And history is filled with stories of fools like that who gained power and wasted it and abused it. Fools spend their time feasting for breakfast. Your princes feast in the morning. Now listen, I like breakfast as much as anybody. Okay, So I don't think he's making an anti-breakfast statement here. Um, I think what he's trying to say is that these leaders' first thought when they wake up in the morning is, how can I party? How can I have a good time? And the land, the people they're over, is going to suffer because they're not concerned for the land. They're not concerned for their people, their community. They're only concerned for themselves. They're fools. 17, happy are you, O land, when your king is the son of nobility and your princes feast at the proper time for strength, not for drunkenness. In contrast, we have somebody who should be king, not because people of nobility are more innately prepared for leadership, but when the leader isn't a fool, when it's somebody who's wise, when it's somebody who's prepared for the role, then, well, then they lead the way that leaders should lead. The wise leader feasts and celebrates, sure, but they don't do it for breakfast time right away. They do it at the proper time, when it's the right thing to do. And they do it for strength. They do it for their happiness and strength and for the good of the whole land, not just for their own stomach and not just so that they can get drunk. It's not just so they can have a good time. You see, when you have good, wise leaders, they use their power, they use their influence, not for themselves, but they use it for others. They use it for the land, for everyone. But foolish leaders are only interested in themselves. They'll destroy anybody and everybody in their path so they can get what they want. Unfortunately, this happens all the time, even in churches, doesn't it? In our churches, there are some who just exist so that the elders or the pastors can be in charge and do what they want. Um, I've been in places, thankfully not, like, not here, but where they'll even admit this. You know, they'll say, well, we're just setting up, we're designing the church. Everything here we do, we just want to amplify the gifts of our, our lead pastor because he's the one in charge and he's awesome. We just want to do everything we can for him. That's what this is about. Man, churches that do that, they just chew people up spit them out. And it's so destructive. It's destructive when churches are led by fools. It's destructive for people's souls who have to endure that. It's destructive for the witness of Christ, the witness of Jesus. Because then people think, oh, that must be what following Jesus is about, when it's not. And it's destructive even for the souls of those fools leading who are going to have to answer to God for what they've done to his people. 18 tells us, though, this Sloth, or through sloth, the roof sinks in. And through indolence, the house leaks. Kind of gives you the picture of a house falling apart. When the fools are in charge, okay, the house they're over starts to decay. They don't do a good job of keeping up with it. When fools are over the business, things begin to leak. When fools are over families, the family starts to sink and suffer. And the fools are over churches, there's destruction as well. Foolish leaders, they rot everything out spiritually. Even if the outside of the house looks good, even if the listing looked nice and the real estate agent told you it was a really good deal, the foundation could be bad. That roof could be just about to start leaking because water's been building up there for years. 
Even if the church is shiny and growing, they got all the ministries in the world and the preaching's awesome, that church can be rotting out spiritually from the inside. Because foolish leaders destroy people and they destroy the people they preside over. They destroy the very things that they lead. Now these last two verses of the chapter, um, they're especially strange. Okay, they're probably the most difficult in the whole passage, especially 19. Um, I, I had to resist making a comment when I read it the first time. Um, Bread is made for laughter, wine gladdens life, and money answers everything. Okay, how do you make sense of that? What do you do with that? This is a good argument for not just reading one verse at a time. You need to read contexts, and you need to not just read a whole chapter. It's good, too, to read the whole book. So if you've read this whole book, if you've been with us, you know, okay, this doesn't square with what we've been hearing Solomon say. But if this is the only verse you read in Ecclesiastes, you're going to get the wrong impression. Okay, Solomon spent the last nine chapters making sure we know that bread, laughter, wine, and money will not fix your problems, will not work, and are going to leave you empty, devastated, and depressed. And then you'll die. That's kind of been the book. So what is he doing here? Why does he say this? Did he change his mind? Did he just forget? Is this bad writing? Is this a mistake in the Bible? No, I don't think it's any of that. Okay, then we've got to read, work carefully. I think because of the context... I think a lot of this here is talking about foolish leaders. I think this is describing the attitude of those leaders. Okay, when we see that the king is a child, they're a fool who feasts in the morning, the land is falling apart because of their rule. Why? They're only focused on, on bread and wine and money and what it does for them and their own joy. They think, well, I got money. That'll fix everything, right? The, the treasury's full. How can the kingdom be bad? For me, that's, that's the way I think that I can make sense of this verse the most. I think it's the most likely interpretation is this is the attitude of fools. And if you think this is the attitude Scripture wants you to have, well, you're kind of a fool too. Verse 20 is a little tricky too. Switches gears. He says, even in your thoughts, do not curse the king, nor in your bedroom curse the rich. For a bird of the air will carry your voice or some winged creature tell the matter tells us we need to be careful to not curse foolish leaders. Even when we see fools in charge. Even when we see the destruction that's left in their wake. We should be careful to not curse or speak cruelly about them. Doesn't mean lie, doesn't mean be dishonest, but don't curse them. And the re- one of the reasons he gives us here is, well, don't do this because you get caught and be punished. Right, the birds, or it could be spies around who are hearing your voice and report it. Again, this is wisdom. It's a proverb. If you make a habit of talking bad about people, eventually you can be guaranteed that they're going to hear about it and find out. It's wiser to keep your mouth shut and not do that. But I think this verse is also difficult for us because we just don't like it. Um, I love St. Augustine. He said, you know, we have a habit of calling some of the plain things in Scripture confusing because we just don't want to obey them. And so if we call it confusing, then it's, it's an out. Oh, this is just really hard, so now I don't have to listen to that. Okay, I don't think this one's that hard. I just think we really don't like what it says. God just finished telling us again how awful and destructive all these leaders are, and then he tells us, and don't curse them. Seems like he's telling us we shouldn't talk badly about him even though they're foolish. And I don't like that because I want to. Okay, I want to complain. I can be a complainer. It's something God is working on me. God's word tells us no. I think this works out a number of ways. I think as Christians, part of what this means is we don't fly flags or wear hats or t-shirts or put big signs in our yard that curse our leaders. doesn't matter if they're a fool or not. God's word tells us no. We're getting ready to get into political season, so I'm sure there's going to be a bunch of those. 
I've seen many people who claim to be Christians being disobedient in this area. But God tells us, no, we don't get to curse our leaders, not even in our thought life. That's the one I really don't like. Not in your bedroom, not when you're alone. Even understanding how destructive foolish leaders can be, even understanding the devastation that is very real and is significant and will be left in our wake, as Christians, we still have to follow Jesus. We don't get a pass and say, well, sorry, Jesus, I don't have to obey you anymore. I don't like who the king is. I don't like the president, the governor, the mayor, whatever leader you want to fill in the blank, my boss. Now, this tells us, even in your thoughts, don't curse the king. Why? Not because of who they are. It's what God says. If you don't like it, take it up with God's word. This is what this verse is. Now, where's the gospel in all of this? Right, so folly and foolish leaders are so destructive it can be overwhelming. Where's our hope? Um, we've been trying to end each sermon looking at the gospel. Point number three, and our hope is in the redemptive power of King Jesus. Our hope is in the redemptive power of Jesus. So the King of Kings is Jesus. He sits at the right hand of God the Father. He rules over all of creation and he is not a fool. Jesus' power, his ways... Even his kingship, they often look foolish to the world. The world doesn't understand it. The world doesn't like it. And often we don't like it either. But it is wise. First Corinthians, most of that whole chapter in first 1, but especially 27, he reminds us that God chose us the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And that the gospel is foolish. The gospel itself, it's a stumbling block and folly to the Greeks. It doesn't make sense. So we worship a crucified God. We believe that our salvation was purchased by his bloody death on a piece of wood executed by Roman soldiers. And we believe that he rose again from the dead. We believe that his resurrection brought victory. And that victory sets us free from sin and death forever, even though we're still waiting for him to come back and finish the job. We believe that his coming was the inauguration of the kingdom of God. And when he returns, he'll set it up for the last time. But the kingdom of God, it doesn't reveal itself in power and might and wonder like the kings of the world. Instead, it's almost often subversive. Power and the redemption of Jesus comes through love and hope and faith and service. We believe foolishly, as the world would say, that Jesus is the only way to experience eternal life. We believe foolishly that we can't be good enough to gain it for ourselves, that it has to be given to us. We believe the only way you can get this gift is by admitting that you don't deserve it. Would you please have it anyway, Jesus? The gospel is foolish to the world. The very kingship of Jesus looked foolish. Even his own disciples didn't get this. They didn't understand that Jesus was the king who conquered and ruled. They were expecting a king who would come and rule in might and power, who would defeat the Romans and kick them all out. And yet that's not what our king did. And when they crucified our king, they mocked him. They mocked his kingship as if he was a fool and a madman. They draped royal robes over him as a joke as they beat him. They put a crown of thorns on his head because this fool couldn't possibly be a king. And above his cross, they wrote the words, King of the Jews. But here's your king. Because they thought faith in Jesus was folly. But Jesus has true wisdom. And following Jesus is the wisest thing you could ever do. And in his wisdom, he brings us redemption. By his blood, he will reconcile all things to himself. And his rule, when he returns, the land is no longer going to fall apart, but will be made new. There will be no more decay. Drought will no longer ruin the land. 
Joel 2 reminds us that when Jesus comes, he will restore what the locusts have eaten. It's one of my favorite phrases to remind us of the redemption of Jesus because the power of King Jesus is greater than any power in the universe. And the destruction and the destructive power of your folly, it is no match for Jesus. No matter how foolish you are, you can find forgiveness and redemption at the feet of Christ. No matter how much of your life or the lives of others that you have destroyed, there's forgiveness in the arms of Jesus. And no matter how deep your sin, you can find grace in the eyes of our Lord. And Jesus, he moves in, he repairs our lives. He repairs what's rotten and what's leaking. He repairs the foundation, puts on a new roof, he refinishes the floors, he sanctifies us. And after he saves us, he doesn't just say, okay, that's good enough. He continues to work on us until he returns. Now, the gospel in our Jesus, he might seem foolish. It might seem foolish to a world that's more impressed with well-curated videos or by those who have power or fame or, you know, whatever we think the new innovation or fancy thing of the day is. But Jesus Christ, the Son of God, Emmanuel, the Prince of Peace, he came to redeem fools. Fools like you and fools like me. And so we all have a choice to make. We can either embrace the wisdom of the world, which is folly, or we can embrace Jesus Christ and a foolish ancient faith where our only hope is. Because a single drop of the blood of Jesus is more than enough to take away all your sins. So let's be fools who have been redeemed by Jesus. It's this morning, we've just been talking about how the folly, how destructive folly and foolish leaders can be. It's a reminder that Jesus can redeem every single fool if, he, if we ask him. And the power of your folly is no match for Jesus. I pray and invite our worship team to come up and lead us once more. Lord, I, I ask that you would come and be with us, Lord. I ask that if there are any here or any who are listening later who don't know you, who feel far from you, who feel like you, you can't forgive them because of what they've done, who feel like you can't possibly love them because of who they are, Lord, that they would feel and see your redemptive power. They would see your grace. Lord, would you draw them to yourself? Um, would they come to know you? Not as a distant God, but as the Father who loves them, as the God who gave your life for them. For those of us who have given our lives to you, Jesus, to follow you, would you help us? Would you aid us? Would you help us to not walk in the foolishness of the world, but we walk in the foolishness of Jesus? Would we not experience the, the suffering that comes from our own foolish decisions, but instead will we get to see the redemptive power of what you are doing in our lives and in the world as we wait for you to return? We pray that your Holy Spirit would help us to apply all that your word has taught us this morning. We pray this in your holy and precious name. Amen. Won't you stand with us as we sing for our Savior once more. Amen. Hear this benediction from the end of Hebrews. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do as well, working in us, that which is pleasing in the sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. God bless you. Go in peace.